This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We spent some time last week talking about the Bible and talking about how the Bible comes to us, specifically in conversation about um, the ESVCE and various translations, different translation theories about Scripture. And I wanted to stay on this topic of Scripture today, but today I wanted to look at Scripture in some ways, looking back on my own experience with it, having been a Protestant in the past, and and how my view of Scripture has changed as I have become a Catholic, uh, and then also to look at the way that we approach and read Scripture for ourselves today. What what is uh, throughout time? What has the Church offered to us as a mode? Uh, so we're going to talk about that today with Bo Bonner, co-host of the Uncommon Good. Uh, we've had him on here before. He's also the director for the Center of Human Flourishing and the senior advisor for mission initiatives and assistant professor at Mercy College of Health Sciences in Iowa. Bo, thanks for being with us again today. It's always great to be back. Glad to uh, be a guest again and talk about such a a wonderful topic. So you and I both share uh, an upbringing that uh, coming from a Protestant church, we had a very particular view of the Bible. Uh, You also spent time in Protestant seminary. I'm curious, um, what are some of your earliest memories of of engaging with the scriptures, and what was the mode in which you did that? It's interesting for me. I think there's two. <laughs> there's there's two dominant modes that I engaged scripture growing up, and so one that I want to universally and enthusiastically praise is growing up um, Southern Baptist in in Oklahoma, and not really fundamentalist, sort of old timey. There was a real poetic way, and I don't mean that like you know the preachers were. Uh, you know, speaking in rhymes or that anyone was necessarily overly sophisticated. Um, But I grew up with such a vivid imagination of what the stories of the Bible um, formed my life. Like, so, you know, you have the big, uh, I come from a family of storytellers, which means liars sometimes, but, you know, we told (laughs) true stories too. But uh, alongside the vividness of stories of like I was sort of around for and can vouch for, you know, interspersed in my childhood is the stories from, you know, David and Goliath through, uh, you know, the, through Jesus and the apostles. And so on one hand, I have to say, I, I, anybody who was able to have that sort of the Bible was alive and, and hooked deep into your memories um, have, was given a wonderful gift. Now, I'll say, though, if you turn to the Bible itself, and I think that that's really important. You know, I, I sometimes have to tell cradle Catholics, like, I don't know if you did this. Did you ever pledge allegiance to the Bible? Oh, yes. Like in Bible camp? Absolutely. There's a whole thing. And then also to the Christian flag. The, yeah. All, all, all the pledges. To the Christian. Yes, yes. Multiple. There were three pledges, right? Which is always funny when they're all like, you guys have statues. And I'm like, well, I've never pledged allegiance to one. But at any rate. Um, yes, the Bible as a, yeah, the the Bible is a thing, right? So Mm -hmm. the Bible is a physical thing and it is a text. And so it is this dominant text and it is self-interpreting. It's sort of enclosed in itself. Um, I don't remember as a kid as much about King James version being sort of, you know, the only text, but like looking back, that that had to be in the air. Now that I'm thinking of it, but at, yeah, you know. So beyond the sort of 
picture and poetic living memory I had of the Bible stories that it was also the Bible. And I know it can seem like I'm going overboard on this, but I, I realized this, it's existence as a text that made you, you had to read it. And then that it, it read everything else. Um, that was the mode, you know, you, you use that word. That was the mode for us growing up. I had a, a Baptist friend of mine who, who explained it this way. He said, we believed as Baptists, we believed in the Holy Trinity, you know, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Bible. <laughs> yeah. he, you know, he, that was, that was his perspective of it, having grown up in that, that way. And he was still in that, in that place when he came in uh, and shared that joke with me. Um, for me, the mode that we often had uh, was, was one of the Bible is the place where you get all the rules and all the answers for how to live your life. And if there's any question that you have, you just go to the Bible and you find the answer there. And so we had these things that I'm sure you heard of these as well. You called sword drills where you, um, uh. you'd have your Bible and, and the person at the front of the children's ministry would call out a chapter and verse. And the first person to find that chapter and verse in their Bible um, that they would, they would get a claim and, and maybe a little prize of something. And you had to be careful because they could call out something that sounded like a verse, like Hezekiah 5.8. And and it sounds right. And so you go looking for it, and and of course, everyone kind of had an egg on their face, except for the one kid who knew the answer and said, that doesn't exist, you know. Uh, But there was this sense of... Yeah, that's your brain. (laughs) There was this sense of you had to know the Bible, lest lest someone trick you up, trip you up on something, trick you. Um, and, and you had to know the Bible because if you came up against something that you didn't know how to solve, you could figure it out if you just knew enough, if you just had enough knowledge of scripture. And that was kind of the view that, um, even coming from a mainline Methodist denomination as a child, that was kind of the mode that was given to us. Um, and, and it took me a long time to get out of that mode to realize the the more liturgical and nuanced um, way that we're going to talk about today. You know, it's funny about this, and I, I've been um, this has been one of those soapboxes I have been on multiple times applying this to different contexts. But this idea that it's a book of rules and a book of lists—I have a sterling example of this, which is actually something that Catholics put to show you how much. Um, the Protestant Reformation, and even in America, the sort of Protestant sort of comportment towards um, Scripture. It's the Ten Commandments, because everyone in their mind thinks the Ten Commandments in the Bible is this list. And I think if you pulled most people, they would think like, yeah, you know, in the Bible, you go to um, wherever the Ten Commandments are, you know, it shows up in two places, and they expect to see it there numbered one through ten. But of course, you go there, there is no numbers. This is why like Protestants and Catholics can even have um, a bit of a, a question about like, what are the Ten Commandments? And as I always like to point out to people, I'm usually making a bigger deal about the text itself and what textualization makes us think about. Um, the most important part of the Ten Commandments is the first line, which is, I am the Lord, your God, which is not even a commandment. Like, you know, that's, the most important part of that, I am the Lord, your God, I brought you out of Egypt. And then everything after that describes how you keep that being the case. How are you going to keep the Lord as your God? 
and here's the commandments. It's not a like, here's a 10 snappy list, how to please God. But we, we sort of decided that the Bible was BuzzFeed information for living a good life before BuzzFeed ever existed. And part of that was the sort of ultra textualization of the Bible uh, as a sort of printed linear array that starts at the beginning and goes to the end. Even though anybody who's ever tried to read the Bible cover to cover realizes that that was never intended to be read that way. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to get the name of this person wrong, so I'm not even going to attempt it. But I do know that that the person I'm thinking of, uh, first name is John, don't know the last name. He was a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton University, which is a very Protestant evangelical school uh, in Wheaton, Illinois. And I was, he was giving a talk at one place where I was talking about um, reading Genesis through ancient eyes, looking at Genesis as a first century person would look at it. And, and what he said was this, he said, scripture, we, we often forget that scripture was written for us, but not to us. And he may not be the person who originally came up with that phrase. He's the one that I heard it from. Scripture was written for us, but not to us. And and I think as you're talking about thinking of the Ten Commandments in this BuzzFeed kind of a way, it points to that because we have a certain mode that we are expecting Scripture to speak to us in. Um, but Scripture was written uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by human voices who were fully human in that voicing, uh, according to uh, Dave Verbum. Um and and they were written by a human author to a human audience, and they had specific things they wanted to convey to that audience. And so they're speaking in a mode that people of their time and, and of their audience would understand. And we can't just assume that, oh, well, I'm going to be able to find these 10 snappy rules to keep God happy um, when their narrative was was their narrative purposes were much different than that. It was to, to highlight relationship, not to highlight rules. And even that, I mean, not to dork out about too that, about this too much, but um, if you look into certain uh, Catholic thinkers who, so like um, Marshall McLuhan, a lot of people have heard his, the medium is the message, but he's actually this Catholic thinker who talks about uh, different mediums throughout time. He has a student called Walter Ong who will talk about, um, orality and it and how it's different than the printed text or visual textual uh, visual textual culture I, you don't need to go too far into this to start to see how your point bears out just in the sort of uh material fact mm-hmm. so the bible not only wasn't written to us it was actually mostly spoken uh it, it's it, uh, even though they were a scriptural culture and they were very much scriptural people i'm not discounting that at all but they were at the, so to speak, the, you know, the, the Old Testament especially was that the birth of textuality, uh, scriptural textuality especially. And even though the New Testament um, was at the sort of uh, uh, new foreground of, of, of different types of, of, of scriptural text. That's why we call it scripture and not scripture, right? Because it was, it, was, it was scripture. And so even our sort of liturgical, the reason why it's important to talk about the liturgical aspect of the Bible is because most people throughout history knew the Bible hearing it. Mm-hmm. Even when it was written and they had it at the, the front of the church, the vast majority of them would hear it, even if they were literate, right? But, you know, it, people forget that Augustine talked about how weird it was when he met Ambrose because Ambrose read quietly. That was so odd to people. 
because even written text uh, in most people's mind throughout most history um, was to be said out loud. And especially the further back you go uh, and, or anything poetic like the Psalms, people, you know, the reason they memorized it was not sword drills so that they could, like you said, get all of the rules and like get snappy lists, but because they expected to speak it and hear it out loud uh, because that's culturally what, what would ha happen. And so even the grand narratives, um, they don't even work like, when we think, oh, this is a historical part of the Bible, for instance, even something like the Chronicles, uh, it's still history and chronicling in a primarily oral culture that a very concentrated group of people are able to read and write. And so even they write thinking their audience would mostly hear it. And I can't express that enough to people how important it is to try to recover in some ways uh, this sensibility that we obviously have lost. You know, even when you go to mass and of course the words being proclaimed, um, you know, up there at the pulpit, what are most people doing in the pews? Well, they've pulled out, you know, their, their daily missile and they're reading along because we are so visual of a culture, especially in the church, that we've forgotten the sort of oral roots. Like the, we, we say things like the Bible speaks, but we go, oh, that's a metaphor. But there's a real way in which the Bible was intended to speak to us and that we need to hear it and, and sort of even um, ingest it orally uh, somewhat more than even visually, or at least we, we need to do a better job of blending the two, I should say. You've hit upon a, a little bit of a soapbox for me. Um, and I do this with my my kids, you know, whenever they hear the music start, they reach for the hymnal. Whenever they see the reading start, they they reach for the missile. And and I I encourage them to not pull out that missile because scripture itself as it as it is written says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And there is something different about ingesting scripture uh, and receiving scripture through hearing than there is through processing scripture through reading. Yes, you have you have been told uh, you, you think about, you know, it, the, the way that scripture will will speak about itself here again, saying speak. Um, and it's funny that to us we go, oh, well, that's obviously a metaphor that's sort of gone over. And now look in the history of sort of media theory, of course, that does happen. We, we will talk about the written word speaking because that shows we as humans know orality precedes um, the written word. But part of it is you think about um, think about a law court. This is an interesting thing. Um, you want your laws written because you want it to be a static thing, right? You don't want to have to keep remembering the law. You write down those statutes and you go find them. But what do we do when we want to hear a witness? Uh, we call them up on the witness stand and we go, well, it means something different. Even though we have all these studies that show that witnesses don't remember very well, but we think there's something human and important to get a witness up onto the stand to speak. And so it's true. We want the word of God written down. We want it to be relatively static. You know, I know that there's like different scribal traditions we could talk about and things like that, but relatively right. Like an impressive feat, 2000 years of one of the most stable texts in human custody. If you really think about it, uh, but still, we yearn for that 
witness because we, we want to witness the witness to Jesus Christ. And so we speak it to each other down through the ages. And it's important, like you said, that faith comes by hearing. We need to hear it from people and, and as much as possible, hear it face to face. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think of, um, I think of a couple of places in scripture where we actually see this play out. Uh, in the Old Testament, where the the people are coming back from exile, they're coming back to Jerusalem, and the the book of the law is found and brought out. This is a we see it a couple of times in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, the the story of them finding the 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 text, the scrolls, and bringing it out and reading it, and having the people hearing those words and processing them in such a way as to be quickened to the heart. Again, back to that relationship. Who are we supposed to be in relation? To God, uh, and that hearing making a profound difference. And then I also think in, in our own context as Catholics, um, one of the things I love to do is go and visit uh, monasteries and to go and participate in the liturgy of the hours um, in in a in that setting in that group where they're chanting the liturgy of the hours. And even there, there's a really interesting thing that happens as the sisters or the monks pray the Psalms. And that's that there it's done antiphonally. So there's a period of time where half of the the choir is praying, uh, praying out this psalm, and they do it for a couple of stanzas. And then they stop and they listen to the other side of the choir speak out those same psalms, chant out that same psalm for a couple of stanzas, and they trade, taking turns proclaiming and hearing and receiving the scriptures that are given to them through the psalms. And as a participant in that, it's a really interesting thing to observe just even within myself how I receive the text differently when I'm speaking it as opposed to when I'm hearing it. Oh, I think that that's a fantastic way of putting this. And I even think of further liturgical devotions to um, a book of scripture. So, you know, that we, that we pick the, the, the scripture up and, you know, we, we carry it. Uh, you know, it, it, there's different, you know, you can do this different ways. But, you know, you see the most solemn way, uh, ways that this can happen in the Mass. You know, we pick it up, it's processed in, uh, you know, we, we use... Uh, the full candles, we, we use incense, um, and then we even kiss, right? You know, like you kiss it after it's done um, being proclaimed. And, you know, you don't kiss uh, an inert object that contains information. I, mm -hmm. I don't, I, I don't want to know if anyone kisses their computer, right? You kiss, so to speak, a, a, a living being that speaks to you, right? Like this is the, the customary ancient uh, medieval uh, greeting, right? To kiss on each cheek. And that's what's supposed to be brought to mind in, in all of this way, that the book is not being uh, obsessed with in, like I said, as a receptacle of information, but a body that speaks. It's the sort of incarnate way, right? That the word of the Lord will be spoken to us. And so even the way that we handle the artifact of the scriptures shows that we are coming face to face with it. It will be proclaimed to us. We will hear it. It will, so to speak, breathe among us. It will not simply be read for the information that it contains. And as you're pointing, I, I think that's a wonderful way to think about it, is antiphonal um, call and response. 
is a, a way that we enact that, uh, you know, the, the, the monks and nuns enact that together. So you've brought up this idea of an information receptacle, and, and that is something that's very familiar to all of us, right? Most of us have a smartphone in our pocket that is an information receptacle. The kids ask a question we don't know the answer to, and we ask Siri, hey, what's the answer to this? So that we can say, oh, well, the moon is X number of miles away from us, bud, right? Uh, and, and And so to look at Scripture as different than merely containing information, whether that be in book form or, or digital form or however it is that we approach it. As you think of it being something different than merely a receptacle of information, what do you envision it to be and how does that change our response to it? Well, this is great. I mean, step one is you have to stop viewing yourself as a receptacle of information. Um, again, this is me stealing this from uh, McLuhan and different people have said different versions of this. You know, humanity invents its tools, its medias, whatever it is, and they're obviously extensions of who we are. But then we let those things influence us back. There's an immediate feedback loop. So just let me say with computers, right? Computers are just the outworking of what is inside of humans, right? Like we create computers. And we make them for specific purposes, so they have specific limitations, uh, both physical and conceptual. But then we start to go, oh, well, that's all we are is a computer. The thing we made, we go, oh, well, my brain is basically a computer. And we even have game shows, right, where we're like, look at me being the best flesh computer. Look at my RAM. Look what I can think of, like, really quickly. Uh, and And... The problem before you even get to making sure you don't view the Bible as a, a nerd, an inert receptacle, sorry, receptacle of information, receptacle, receptacle, excuse me. Thank you. Receptacle of information um, is that you don't do that to yourself. You weren't put on this earth just to be a storehouse of trivia. You are a living being that creates memory palaces so that you re-inhabit them. You find those spaces again, and, and you have a relationship with all of these things you know. Scripture is the same way. It is a living thing that not only, like you said, it's not, it's not static in the sense of now it's done just because it was written. Um, it's like you, you know, pointed out earlier, alluded to. Um, the Holy Spirit used these humans to write these human words, and the Holy Spirit speaks through those same words to all of us in multifaceted ways throughout time. This underlies everything we say about like the, you know, the literal sense of Scripture or the spiritual sense, the fact that the Scripture keeps unfolding, that it has new things to say. There's even a way that we say that the translations um, – that the, the, the Septuagint and the Vulgate, you know, are they're not new revelations of a new religion or anything silly like that. But there's an incarnational aspect of them that God uh, in that time and in that place, you know, had those translations be as seminal as they were. It's it is not just a block of information for us to download into our own memory banks. Um what do I think it is, but like the word of God incarnate uh, through uh, this living word. And so scripture is 
the word made flesh in a different sort of way, right? It's not like the person walking around of Jesus Christ. It's not the Eucharist, but certainly it is the way in which the Spirit lives among us and speaks. Um, and that's why, you know, we can come back reading the same verses over and over again and not merely just to memorize them to win sword v- drills or Catholic final jeopardy, but to expect them to speak to us anew every time <coughs> we do that. So you, <coughs> excuse me. you touched on something that I want to push a little bit further into. Um, the first is this, this idea that we are not merely machines, rather we're not merely computers to, to hold information. And immediately as you started talking about that, I think back to, I think it's Proverbs one that, um, the, the, on the law of God, this, the righteous person meditates day and night. And that the idea of taking the time to, to sit with something, so to sit with the text, to sit with the precepts of God, not for the purpose of gaining understanding or information, but just merely for the purpose of meditating on them, sitting there and, and almost like allowing the, the tide to kind of wash over you as you sit on the shore. Um, to, to experience scripture and not necessarily just to uh, appropriate uh, information. But even as you were talking about um, the, th- the minute that we create something that is the minute that we then allow it to, to kind of frame our view of ourselves. Uh, you were talking about computers and that we created computers and we now expect ourselves uh, to just be exactly like computers. And you were talking about, rather this thing that we're called to, to go and to build these, these memory palaces that we come back to this idea of, of really sitting in, in leisure in holy leisure with an idea. And as soon as that thought came to my mind, I thought, well, let's push that back further before computers. We were also doing this with machines, right? I'm, I'm merely here to enact work, uh, to make things uh, fruitful or happen here on the earth. And of course, there is a certain dignity of work that the church talks about. But when work takes over to the point where we are not being and being with, uh, in relationship and in communion with the divine being, then then we're missing something essential to who we are. I'm like a cat where you're throwing out three different types <laughs> of catnip. You're hitting on... Uh, uh, one of the things I like bringing up from the Psalms and Proverbs, uh, you got one um, squarely with um, uh, the Joseph Pieper right. angle and contemplation, and then also very much with uh, the media stuff. Well, there's a lot there to talk about, but the good news is you've got a little bit of time. We're going to go into a break. Um, we're talking today with Bo Bonner, who's the director for the Center for Human Flourishing at Mercy College of Health Sciences in Iowa. Uh, Come talk to us over on social media. Be a part of the ongoing conversation as we talk about the importance and the place of Scripture in our lives and how we approach it. Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. But don't go anywhere because there is so much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. Today, we are talking about how we approach Scripture. And um, it's, it seems like that would be a straightforward topic, but it's not as straightforward as you might imagine. We're talking today with Bo Bonner, who's the director of the Center for Human Flourishing at Mercy College of Health Sciences. He's also the co-host of the Uncommon Good radio program. Uh, you can cat- we'll put a link to that over on our social media because the uh, the website's a little. Uh, it's just not on the top of my head right now. Bo, thanks for being here. Absolutely, thanks for asking me uh, to speak about uh, the wonders of Scripture. Uh, it's always feels like uh, it. it I've done it for a while now, and it always feels like it's a great opportunity that is is undeserved. So I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So right before the break, I threw out a few. <laughs> I can't. I can't just ask one question. Apparently, uh, I always have to have like at least three. Uh, and I, I did three for you today. We were talking about um, how we approach. Uh, how we often turn ourselves into the things that we've made. So you brought up, we sometimes think of ourselves as computers. I pushed it even back further and said, we also tend to think of ourselves as machines. We have to do the work and get things done. And we've lost this sense of just listening or reading for reading's sake. Like even now when we go and we, uh, when we watch a movie or we watch Netflix or Ben's watch a show, we're doing it to escape. Um, and not necessarily to think and put that against the stories of yesteryear where very often the point was to sit with the story and to contemplate the story and not just have something distract us for an hour and a half. Yeah. And that's what I said. You're, I I couldn't have paid you more to alley-oop the current things I'm thinking about because this (laughs) is sort of like Joseph Pieper, who I've been talking about for a while, Marshall McLuhan, uh, with the whole, what we, you know, we make ourselves into machines. And then it's a John Henry Newman point in all of this, but you brought up Proverbs and it made me think of, um, Psalm, the first Psalm, which gets to this. So blessed is the man that follows not in the counsel of the wicked nor since in the company of scoffers, uh, but and I'm missing a line, but has his delight in the law of the Lord and on his law shall meditate day and night. He shall be as a tree that is planted by running water that yields its fruit in due season, whose leaves shall not wither and whatsoever he does shall prosper. Not so the wicked, not so. They shall be like chaff that the wind sweeps from the earth. And the reason I want to say that other than I actually have at least one psalm memorized. So if any of you know the monks are listening, I've done my job. Um, there's really this idea, right, that to sit and meditate makes us have deep roots planted by a running stream that makes us fully bloom to get to your point here. Right. And that the wicked, whatever else they do, they're like an inert dead thing that the wind blows here, there, here, there, and everywhere. And so that if we don't take the time to have the deep roots that, uh, or as we would say back home roots, uh, by the living stream, um, we won't grow, we won't be anchored, we won't have fruit. And this gets into exactly what you say about treating ourselves as machines. And I want to point out that it's not just the digital world or the television world. All media can be abused. And, and, and in fact, this is was a hard thing for me to come to grips with because I'm a big, great books guy. And I really do think books are great. And there's, you know, the, the greatest among them, of course. 
the Bible. Um, but books themselves uh, really changed how humans thought, and especially the printing press. So we can't be, so to speak, Amish about this and just retreat back enough and like, oh, well, this technology is fine, but all others after it are bad. Because again, yeah. the printing press in many ways galvanized, if not made possible, uh, the Protestant revolution, um, nation states. I mean, even things like, you know, McLuhan will say like, imply like schizophrenia and certain things become possible when the printing press comes around that were impossible before that. And of course, if you go back to the medium of speech, even it's not pure. It was with speech, right? That we fell from the Garden of Eden, uh, where we lied to each other. So I'm not trying to act like there's some media that if we just went back far enough, we'd be safe, because all of them, like you said, have this temptation that eventually we would make something and then imitate it. We make our machines and then we imitate our machines. And like you said, this is the sort of Joseph Pieper point about leisure. Um, and, you know, just I'm just plagiarizing him out and out here. But if people want to go read Leisure, the Basis of Culture, this is where he makes the point is that if the whole world is reduced to a workday world, um, we cut off what essentially makes us human, that deep roots that, that Psalm 1 speaks to, right? That if we're not going to um, take the time to contemplate, to, to what he says is more like intellectus, like intellectual, re receptive, um, active receptivity, rather than like what he called ratio, the sort of focused, I'm going out and gathering. We need to be, we need to have that contemplative, receptive time. And he says it's not just for academics only, like festival in general does this. But until we approach scripture, uh, among other things, that we don't think of it just as work to have a use. And that's finally where this gets into the Newman point. When we make all knowledge utilitarian, when we make it all use, that means that we're just like cogs in a machine. Um, the proof that I have of this is like, you know, I usually say this when talking about nursing because, you know, I work at a health science school, but it, it pertains to anything. The fact that we say that humans burn out shows how much we've already given up the ghost. Because, of course, no human literally burns out. I've not seen that yet. What we're doing is using a machine metaphor to talk about human souls being crushed. But that shows you, right? That's we've already failed because we think humans burn out rather than to go, oh, they need to have rest. They need to have leisure. And that's what John Henry Newman in his idea of the university is saying is that there's not knowledge that's for its own sake, that if we don't keep that sacred, then eventually all knowledge, all knowers and all people become just use well, look how do we how do we use them this really does all come back to scripture um i think that when we look at a culture that at least in some ways has considered itself christian when it streamlines the scriptures itself the very word of god down to whether it's useful or not um then we give up everything else. We give up the entire ghost. And, and this gets back to my buzz list of, or, or what you were saying is that the Bible is the big storehouse or manual of how you should behave, what you should do and what you should care about. That's making the Bible uh, this big utilitarian um, storehouse of useful things rather than the thing being worth it for its own sake. I want to point out something else here. Um, going back to that earlier statement that Scripture was written uh, for us, but not to us, uh, one of the things that I think 
happens when we try to make scripture into this receptacle of information uh, is that we we do a disservice to the scripture and to us. Uh, we see throughout history, scripture sometimes being used to dominate uh, and oppress a people. Like if I can just convince them that they are this lesser thing, um, as as we would, uh, history shows was done to the slaves as certain passages were moved and they were given abridged versions of the Bible. Um, when we tend to see scripture as something we grasp and understand and in some way have tamed um, rather than this this thing that reads into us and and corrects us and the Holy Spirit convicts us through, uh, then we've we've missed the mark and we've maybe put ourselves in danger and certainly put others in danger. Man, this is, again— Hey, I should let people know I didn't pay you to ask these questions because this is another one. I mean, I just got done earlier this week telling a group of students, um, you know, it's a motto at this point. They can repeat it without me saying the full thing. It's, it's much more important to learn how a book reads you than you read the book, or at least when we're reading it like literature for contemplative purposes. Um, and, and I, you know, this gets into um, a point that I wanted to jump in with you, but just to point out your very salient one anytime the bible is objectified and it's funny because like sometimes catholics get oh you know you idolize it right you make it a thing that you know you venerate you should venerate the bible but if you make it an object which is quite different than it being venerated as a a thing with the capacity to have living words uh you do i don't want to say you out and out commit blasphemy that might be um too harsh but certainly you uh you try to do something akin to simony you make the word of god into an object you wield and you will undoubtedly um disparage the image of god either in you or someone else um we do not have that mastery of the bible it's not for us to do that and this is why uh i sometimes worry about even when we're trying to teach people um, i mean certainly right like ignorance of the bible is ignorance of christ it makes sense that, you know, recently there's been a real push to try to teach people how to, you know, exegete the Bible, how to read it. How, you know, like, why let only the academics be in on these tricks? Um, certainly we should, you know, uh, if, if people have the time and the resources, they should learn too. But before someone gets to where they are exegetes of the Bible, or even to give the impression that if you aren't up for being uh, an interpreter of the Bible, you should just leave it alone. I actually think it's quite opposite. The first thing we should teach the laity to do is have the images of the Bible so firmly in mind that they exegete, they interpret their lives with the Bible before they ever worry about whether they're great interpreters of the biblical text. If they could just know the Bible imagery, like where it's just it's just second nature, so that when you know grandma's dying they think Psalm 23 to interpret what grandma's going through and not, Oh, I need to have the academic tools to like know everything about Psalm 23. There's definitely a time and place for that. And it's great if people can, but the first thing is much more important and primary than the latter. I once heard scripture referred to as an expression of the old Testament tabernacle. 
that as you entered into that Old Testament tabernacle, there was this brazen laver. And there was the, the brazen laver was right as you entered in, and it had a mirrored finish on the inside. Uh, so that as you approached that laver, you would examine yourself and wash yourself before entering into that temple. And I don't know how accurate this is, but it was a really profound picture to me uh, that the person who was sharing this likened Scripture to that labor, saying that I come to Scripture to examine myself and to wash myself. Uh, And I think so oftentimes we use Scripture as a measuring stick for someone else rather than something that purifies us. No, I actually love that a lot. Um, And it reminds me of, like, Venerable Bede has, he he has a very mystical read of the the temple. I don't know if it's exactly about this, but I like it because that, that, it it, it sounds really patristic to me, right? Like, even the temple, the tabernacle itself is to remind us how we approach the presence of God, even in something like scripture. And yeah, so not only do we examine ourselves and wash ourselves, but if we're not bringing something to uh, the altar of Scripture to sacrifice of ourselves, um, it, we're probably not approaching um, Scripture quite like we should. And you know, you think about like, you know Lexio Divina, which in some ways, um, in some ways, I have to admit its popularization has sort of maybe flattened um, the, the, the history and tradition of it. Uh, to make it one more method, right? Like this more making it a, a useful thing. Like, how do I get the most out of Scripture? But of course, that's what I would say to people. It's like, well, what did you bring to Scripture? Uh, what, what did you bring of yourself to, to, to place on that altar of sacrifice before you got to the, the presence of God? And Lexio Divina, mental prayer, any of these things um, are not methods about how to get the most out of Scripture. They're this idea of, what do we do to enter into the presence of God who is in Scripture um, if we are prepared uh, to listen, uh, as, as the Benedictine rule says, with, with the ear of our heart? You brought up the, the fathers and their use of Scripture. And, and I, I honestly think that if you are not yet sure how to read Scripture in the way that the Church wants us to read Scripture, just read the fathers. Because they're one, they're so saturated in scripture that you are still hearing those words. But two, they have a completely different way of approaching and contextualizing and understanding the sacred text that applies it in a way that our modern world, I don't think, could ever conceive of. You know, we we want it to be a real nice, quick answer, and there's a poetry that they bring to scripture. Uh, and and it makes it very clear that this scripture is meant to inform life and not just give answers. Yeah, and, and there's actually three. I'm usually, I usually have a hard time of being like, well, where would you start with the apostolic fathers? But in this regard, to your point, I have three specific in mind. Um, one would be, so Ignatius of Antioch, um, very early uh, apostolic father who is, he's being drugged off to Rome to be executed, to be fed to lions. And he's writing letters uh, to churches along the way. And so this is an intimate form. He's writing letters to like people he relatively or does know. And to see, like you said, how um, scripture just drips off his pen, as it were, as he's talking about these really extreme. I mean, he's going to his death and he's narrating what he thinks this means. So that's a really good place to start. 
Another one would be the martyrdom of Polycarp, which beyond it being, you know, one of the coolest named uh, apostolic fathers. Um, but here's the story of his martyrdom and just how rife it is where to narrate his life is for them to think again and again and again of, uh, of biblical imagery. The third one would be Irenaeus, Irenaeus of Lyon. And he has this massive work that uh, is probably a little bit too much for people to work with called Against Heresies. But he has a much smaller work called On Apostolic Preaching, where he sort of gives a summary of scripture and how he sees it all pulled together as an overarching. Uh, he, he basically is saying he's trying to do what Jesus was said to do on the road to Emmaus when he revealed how himself uh, in the scriptures up to that point. And so, you know, those are three ways that if people are like, oh, well, we hear all this all the time, that the patristics are so scriptural. And it's absolutely true. There's all sorts of places you can go. But those would be three, I think, actually relatively straightforward ones, you know. Ignatius of Antioch and his letters, which are him suffused with scripture, writing about his life as he heads off to his death. The martyrdom of Polycarp, um, where his martyrdom is basically narrated through the imagery of scripture. And then Irenaeus um, on apostolic preaching, where he is much more explicit about this is how I see the general arc um, of, of scripture. And to your point, None of these really are, even Irenaeus, where he's like, this is sort of the arc of scripture and its story it takes. None of them are like, here's the best way, this is the pertinent information. The scripture becomes the medium in which to speak about everything. How am I going to talk about what I'm going off to do? I'm going to relate it to scripture. How do we talk about the death of this amazing man? We're going to relate it to scripture. How are we going to talk about being the church and what it is to, to proclaim what we believe is true? And there again, it's not just like discrete information packets. Like it's none of it's like, go find, you go find this here in the scripture. It's this, it, 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 it's alive from the scripture and it stems from it and it arises from it. It's like the scripture emits these things and manifests these things. Yeah. We've been talking today with Bo Bonner, the director for the Center of Human Flourishing and assistant professor at Mercy College of Health Sciences. If you can't get enough, well, I've got good news. He is the co-host of The Uncommon Good with Bud Mara and Bo Bonner. We'll put a link to that over on our social media. Bo, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Absolutely. It was a wonderful time. Thank you. If you missed any part of my conversation with Bo, or you want to go back and listen to it again, or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. There you can look through the guest list, see all that have come before, and also click the link that says Patreon at the top. There you'll find extra content. Each and every week, we make extra segments that we uh, ask a couple of extra questions, a deeper dive into the topic. In gratitude for all of those who help support the show through Patreon. If that's something that interests you, consider joining that Patreon support community and getting new content each and every week. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and church history. That's the sound of our Verbum library launching up. Verbum helps connect scripture to the whole 
tradition of the church. Uh, there you can access the catechism, fathers and doctors of the church, biblical commentaries, and more. And there's a brand new version of Verbum out, just came out this last week. Uh, Verbum 10 is now available with brand new libraries, brand new features to help you dig even deeper into scripture. Learn more at Verbum.com. Today's reading from Scripture comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you! For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the teachers of the law answered him, Teacher, in saying these things you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. That reading comes from the Gospel of Luke chapter 11, and what it points out to us today is that Scripture can be used in a way, and we talked about this a little earlier, that objectifies the Scripture and in turn then also objectifies the people around us. Uh, And and we do this, and you see this as Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, uh, by keeping the letter of the law as we read it without keeping the spirit of the law. So here he says, it's right and good that you tithed the the mint and the rue and the the smallest herb, but you neglected what's behind all of that. You neglected the matters of justice and of mercy. So uh, our challenge as we approach Scripture is to approach Scripture with humility and and as as a way to measure ourselves and not to measure others. Of what, what is it? that God would have us do. And of course, he answers this in the book of Micah, where he says, uh, You've, you know, O oh man, what is, what is required of you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Our reading today from Church History comes from a work by Baldwin of Canterbury. The Word of God is both living and powerful, and much more piercing than a two-edged sword. The Word of God is plainly shown in all its strengths and wisdom to those who seek out Christ, who is the Word, the power and the wisdom of God. This Word was with the Father in the beginning, and in its own time was revealed to the apostles, then preached by them, and humbly received in faith by believers. So the Word is in the Father as well as on our lips and in our hearts. This Word of God is living. The Father gave it life in himself, just as he has life in himself. For this reason, it not only is alive, but it is life. As he says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Since he is life, he is both living and life-giving. For as the Father raises up the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to those he chooses. He is life-giving when he calls the dead from the grave and says, Lazarus, come forth. When his word is preached, in the very act of preaching it, it gives its own voice, which is heard outwardly, a certain power 
which is perceived inwardly so much so that the dead are brought back to life. And by these praises, the sons of Abraham are raised from the dead. This word then is alive in the hearts of the Father, on the lips of the preacher, and in the hearts of those who believe and love him. Since this word is truly alive, undoubtedly it is full of power. It is the power of creation, powerful in the government of the universe, powerful in the redemption of the world. For what is more powerful, more effective? Who shall speak of its power? Who shall make all its praises heard? It is powerful in what it accomplishes, powerful when preached. It does not come back empty. It bears fruit in all to whom it is sent. It is powerful and more piercing than any two-edged sword when it is believed and loved. For what is impossible to the believer? What is difficult for a lover? When this word is spoken, its message pierces the heart like sharp arrows of a strong man, like nails driven deep. It enters so deeply that it penetrates to the inmost recess. This word is much more piercing than any two-edged sword, inasmuch as it is stronger than any courage or power, sharper than any shrewdness of human ingenuity, keener than all human wisdom, or the subtlety of learned argument. That reading comes from a work by Baldwin of Canterbury. And as we look at this, it again, uh, the, I love that picture. What is difficult for the lover? What, what, I love that that section there at the end. Uh, that I love that last paragraph. It's more powerful and more piercing than any two-edged sword when it is believed and loved. For what is impossible for the believer and what is difficult for the lover? When we hear the word of God and it pierces us and and maybe even points out some shortcoming that we have, some sin that we need to give up. When we who are in loving relationship with God the Father are faced with that reality, is it really all that difficult? It's it's not a burden to us, as we read in our reading from Scripture. It's not a heavy burden that we can't bear because our God is there to help us to bend down and to carry that burden with us, to make all things possible for us because it's not just a set of rules. It's an invitation into the divine life in which he walks with us, purifies us, helps us to to know and to grow, and fills us with his love and his peace that passes all understanding. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show was brought to you by Anil Thomas and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link and consider joining their numbers. And until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing, but God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices.